Praise the Lord. Let's all stand up and greet each other in the, in the love of the Lord this evening, and we'll get into our study. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, uh, if you forgot it at home or you don't own one, there should be one under a seat in front of you. Uh, please take that out. Open it up with us to Genesis 22. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you. It's important that you have the Word of God with you and you be in it every day and be blessed by it. As we continue our look at the life of Abraham and in this incredible life that he's gone through and the amazing things that God has brought him in and through, we come to an amazing chapter. I got to tell you again today, as I've just been studying through this and, and seeing how the Lord just opens up new things and man, this is, this is powerful. This is powerful. We see an incredible story here of one man's faith and God's faithfulness. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. So let's, let's get into it here. Genesis chapter 22. Now it came about after these things. And if you remember last time, we talked about the fact that Isaac, the son of promise, that God promised that would come to Abraham and Sarah, has finally been born. And uh, he's been weaned. We talked about that the last time. They had this celebration as he's growing older and the difficulties with uh, Ishmael and the, dealing with that. After these things now, Isaac, we don't know how old he is at this point. There's a lot of discussion about that. Most commentators and, and Jewish commentators looking back through the Torah believe that he was at least in his late teens, some think even into his late 20s. So many years have passed since the last we looked last week. So now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. We see an incredible thing that God is asking Abraham to do. And it tells us in verse 1, it says that God tested Abraham. Now, I believe it's the King James Version that actually has it translated, tempted Abraham. And we need to get an understanding of what is going on here. And in order to do that, if you would turn with me real quickly to James chapter 1, we're going to see and look at the difference between testing and temptation. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we see it explained clearly here the difference. James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
Now, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, and by the way, it is when he is tempted, not if. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We see here two very different distinct things. He talks trials, and then he says temptation in verse 13. Now, the word that is used, and we're going to have a quick little Greek lesson here. The word that is used in verse 12 is perasmos. And, that, and then the word that is used in verse 13 is perazo. They come from the same root. Now, you don't need to turn there, but you can make a little note in your margin that might remind you of this, or if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation, and that's the word perasmos, has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, and here's the other word, parazo, beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, parasmos again, will provide you a way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. Now, if that doesn't make it more confusing, you haven't listened to what I just said. <laughs> the two words are interchangeable. The, the, the root of that word can mean to be either be tempted or to be tested. And when we look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that brings me great comfort. Because no matter what I go through, whether it's a temptation or a test that God brings my way, or a temptation that the enemy brings my way, or my flesh, or the world, God will not allow a temptation or a test to come my way that he will not provide a way through. He will not allow me to be tempted or tested beyond what I am able to get through. And the same is true for you. And that is a, a promise that we can hold on to. But what is the difference then when we start talking about this tempting or testing? Well, the bottom line is the difference between a trial and a test can be broken down into four areas. The root, the response, the routine, and the results. The root, where it's coming from. The response, how we respond to it. The routine, the, the steps that go along, and then finally the result. First of all, a test. The root of any test that is coming our way is from God. He is the cause of the test. Our response to a test as Christians is to endure, to persevere. And it tells us in our text in James here that when we do that, the routine then is faith followed by obedience. And we're going to see this so perfectly acted out in our, in our story in Genesis 22. And ultimately, it tells us that the result is the crown of life. Now, the temptation, on the other hand, again, it has a different root. It has a different cause. It's coming from, from evil forces, demonic forces. It's coming from the world, or it's coming from our own flesh. Our response to that is to resist it. Not to, not to endure temptation. We are to resist temptation. We are to push it away. And it tells us in our text, again in James, that the routine that we go through when we fall prey to that is a desire followed by temptation, followed by sin, and then followed by that by habitual sin. It says here, when sin is accomplished, that means to be brought to completion, that it becomes part of our life. And the result of that is death. It's important to understand 
that what James is telling us here and what we see back here in, the, in Genesis, God is not tempting Abraham, he is testing him. And we are going to see that this test is far beyond any test that, that we will ever have to face. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the test that he's going to go through? Well, back in chapter 22 of Genesis, it says in verse 2, as we said, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. This is an amazing thing that I found out as I was going through a class in Genesis. We are reading God's love letter to us. The Bible is God's love letter to us as Christians. We are in chapter 22 of Genesis, and this is the first mention of the word love. The first mention. And it's not mentioned talking about love between a husband and wife. It's not talking about even love towards God. It's talking about a father's love for his son. Giving the example, the first mention of love, the father's love towards his son. Now, this is where it really gets cool. Do you know the first mention of love in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And in that, Jesus is being baptized. And he comes out. And the Father says from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that word beloved, again, is the Greek word agapitas, with the root agape love. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The first time it is used in the Gospel of Mark is chapter 1, verse 11, the same story. This is my beloved son. The same thing with Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 16, the first time love is used in Luke, the same story. This is my beloved son. Can anyone guess the first time it's used in the Gospel of John? Any guess? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This love that is described here and utilized for the first time, talking about the father's love for his son, this eternal love that they have, this perfect love, no matter how much I love my sons and I do, no matter how much I do, it falls so far short of the perfect love between the Heavenly Father and the Son. But because he loved you, he gave his only Son. That is something that if it doesn't blow your mind, and I would encourage you when you take home, if you take nothing else home tonight, take that home and meditate on that. He loves you that much. That perfect love that he gave his only son. Now he continues, take your only son and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. He says here, your only son. Now, as we just talked about last time and we've talked about for several weeks previously, is, is Isaac Abraham's only son? He has Ishmael that is a son. But as we've talked about last week, Ishmael was a product of the flesh. Ishmael was a product of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands, taking Hagar, her maidservant, and giving her as another wife to Abraham, a concubine, and producing a son through that flesh effort, through sin, if you would. 
Now, when I see this, it blesses me to no end because God is basically saying, that's past. We have dealt with that. That's over. Your only son. And he's going to, again, use Abraham in an incredible way to teach us a lesson even through all of this time. And I, I know, because I deal with this constantly, and I know that there's got to be at least one other person in this room who you feel God calling you to do something, and you say, I can't do that. I'm not worthy to do that. I can't be used in that powerful way. This, is, this has happened in my past. God, you know it as well as I do. You know my heart. And God is saying, I've dealt with that. I have dealt with that. That is done. That is far as the east is from the west. What are you talking about? I can't use you. I've taken care of that. What an amazing truth. And we can so beat ourselves up over that. I want to tell you again tonight, if, if you are in that position, you simply need to repent of your sin, turn back to him, and he will use you in incredible ways. Because it's not about you. This whole thing that we're going to be talking about tonight isn't about Abraham. It's an amazing story, but it's not, it's not just about his faith. It's about God's faithfulness. And he will be faithful to you. He will be faithful to use you if you are willing to be used by him. Well, as we continue, verse 3 it says, so Abram, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Obedience. This incredible thing that God has asked Abraham to do, and it doesn't say that he waited any time. As a matter of fact, it says he rose early in the morning. It doesn't say that he waited around to get further instructions. It doesn't say that, you know, wait a second, I need to understand more about this before I, I move out in here. you got to think. It's not recorded for us. you got to think he's flooded with incredible emotion and a whole lot of questions. What is going on? But nothing is recorded. He doesn't ask any questions. He just responds with immediate obedience. He rose early in the morning. He didn't pray about it. He didn't seek counsel about it. He didn't put out a fleece, <laughs> say, all right, Lord, if this is really what you're saying, I want, uh, you know, I want that. There was, he, he knew that he had heard from the Lord, specifically, this is what you are to do. Obedience. He rose early. It tells us that he split the wood. He got up and he split the wood. He cut all the wood for the sacrifice. He didn't take off and say, all right, Lord, if this is your will, we're going to take off and go, and obviously you're going to make sure that everything's ready for me when I get there. He took care of it. He made provisions to make sure that he could fulfill what God was asking him to do. If you are being called by God to go and reconcile with a family member, let's say they live in California, and he has placed it on your heart that you need to drive to California, and you need to go reconcile that situation, don't Ask counsel about it. Don't put out a fleece. You be obedient to God's will. And don't pull out of the driveway with a quarter tank of gas and say, all right, Lord, if, you want, if you're going to have to get me there, you stop and fill up on the way. It says he arose and went. He got up and went. What is God calling you to do? What is God speaking to your heart specifically about? Quit stalling. You don't need to pray any more about it. 
If God is speaking to you, do it. Do it. Be obedient as Abraham was. What a great example for us. Well, verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young man, young men, the two that were with him, he said, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. We will worship and return to you. Now it's interesting, that word worship. We have our own ideas about what worship is. The word worship that's used here literally means to bow down. To bow down. And I love that. We sang that earlier. Bow down. He knew what they were going to do. They were going to go up and worship God. They were going to bow down before him. But notice he says, and we will return to you. He had incredible faith even in this moment. He knew what God had asked him to do. He didn't know the result. He didn't know how it was going to all work out. But he had faith in God and God's word. Because what did God say about his son Isaac? Through Isaac, he was going to have a huge nation of people through Isaac. And that can't happen if Isaac dies today. So I don't understand how this is going to work out. He hasn't revealed any more information to me. But I know my God promised this, and I know my God cannot lie. So I'm going to continue to move forward in that. Now, if he had focused on the promise... Wait a second, God, you said that my son is going to be a great nation, so you can't possibly be saying this to me and ignore it. He's focusing on the promise. We need to focus, as Abraham did, on the promisor and let him take care of the promise. We, we learned through Abraham's life and through all of our own mistakes that when we help God along with the problem, we're not helping. We make things a lot worse. We make things a lot more complicated. We make things a lot more painful. We need to trust the promisor and let him take care of the promise. We have some amazing insight into what was going through Abraham's mind in Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. It tells us here that he didn't understand it completely, but he knew that if God actually went through with this and he was actually going to kill his son and offer him as a sacrifice, God would bring him back to life. It has never been done before. There hasn't been a recorded incident of a resurrection, but he trusted in God completely. And it tells us here that he received him back as a type. Now, if you were here on Sunday, I, I talked a little bit about typology and shadows. This story is rich with typology. What the, what, if you weren't here, typology is simply something, a story, a person, an event in the Old Testament that points to a New Testament fulfillment or truth. We see that in shadows and typology is what it's being talked about here. And if we look at Isaac, who is a perfect, what we call again, type, not the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. Isaac is a type of Jesus. There are many things, and we're going to see a whole bunch of them as they unfold. We've already talked about a couple of them. His birth was promised ahead of time, as Jesus was. Uh, and, and, and a miraculous conception. Both Abraham and Sarah were well past the age of childbearing. Jesus 
being a virgin, born of a virgin. We see in Galatians 3.16 talking about the fact that Isaac is this type. It says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So we, we, we got to be careful, as I mentioned on Sunday, that we don't overdo these things and we don't look for types and shadows that aren't there. But here specifically, the word of God tells us that Isaac is a type of Christ. And we're going to see a bunch more of these things that are just amazing how God puts this all together. We see another here in verse 6. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And I'm going to quote John Corson's commentary on this verse because, again, talking about the typology that is here, it says, Isaac carried the wood upon which he would be laid, just as Jesus carried the wooden cross upon which he would be nailed. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. John Corson goes on and continues. He says, What was on the shoulder of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? The cross. That's why he has the right to rule over me. That's why he has the right to reign over you. He alone died in your place. So we see this other picture, this type being fulfilled in Isaac of the Lord. Now verse 7 and 8 as it continues, Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but there, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. One thing to note here, that word for, if you have a New American Standard, and I didn't check the other ones, that word for, God will provide for himself the land of the birth offering, is not in the original text. God himself will provide, God will provide himself the land. He will provide himself. Again, the perfect fulfillment in that, Jesus being the land, providing himself as the offering the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, we get some more details again into the, God doesn't do anything by coincidence. Nothing's by mistake. And again, I look back to what we talked about earlier about the first mention of love in those things. Tell, the authors didn't know that when they wrote this. The, the gospel writers didn't know that. But to me, again, it's another underscore of the fact that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. God himself wrote this. And we see the place that we talked about earlier. It says, and they came to the place of which God had told him. And we look back and we see in, in verse 2 that that's the land of Moriah, Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us that Mount Moriah is where the temple was built in Jerusalem. Same place. Back then, obviously, this isn't going on. There's, there's nothing there. There might be a few, few villages close by, but this particular spot isn't inhabited yet. But it becomes 
the Temple Mount, where the temple is built. And all of the sacrifices then that we've talked about for the past few weeks on the weekends in Hebrews, all of the sacrifices that the priests are making are happening right where this happened. And very close by there. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know that there's a couple of places that are kind of in dispute that nobody knows for certain where the actual crucifixion took place, where, where Golgotha was. But both of them, one of them is either a little higher mountain, a little bit higher from the, where the temple is today or where the, the ruins of the temple, where it was then, a little bit higher up. And then there's another spot that, that when we go um, here in another few weeks and where we've gone before, our tour group takes us, there's actually a place and it looks like a skull in the rock. There's indented eyes and everything. I mean, it's just, it, there, that, and right next to it is the garden where there was a tomb found. And again, the, the point isn't exactly where, if that is exactly the place, the point is that the tomb that's there is empty. That's the, that's the big important part. But either way, whether it's up a little bit higher on this little mount or right next to Mount Moriah is where, again, Jesus would fulfill this type that is taking place here, what is happening here. Now we see in this, as we look at verses 9 and 10, they came to the place and, and they built the altar and they arranged the wood. And it says that Isaac, Abraham bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Abraham is more than likely at this point 120 plus years old. And his son is in his late teens, early 20s, mid 20s. Isaac had to willingly go along with this. There, there is no way, even, even if Abraham's building the altar, Abraham, Isaac's starting to figure things out, take off running. Or when he starts to tie him up, he, you know, there's no, there's no way. Isaac went along willingly with this. And again, we see another beautiful type picture of our Lord and Savior who, who willingly went to the cross. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Another beautiful picture. He still doesn't know the plan. Abraham still doesn't know as, as we see in verse 10, it says he stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He still doesn't have the complete picture. He's moving along with obedience. And in this obedience, as I see it laying out here, he's receiving the faith that he needs to continue. And in that, again, I am encouraged that if the Lord lays in, in front of me something that I think that there is, there's no way that I can get through, there's no way that I can manage this, I need to step out in obedience and trust God to give me the faith that I need to continue down that road. Again, I, I, somewhere through this, and again, it, none of this is recorded, but I got to think all of these things running through Abraham's mind, thinking, okay, any minute he's going to tell me what's going on. Any minute. And it gets to the point where he raises the knife to kill his son. Incredible faith and obedience from Abraham. Incredible faith and obedience from Isaac. And again, incredible faith and obedience in our Lord and Savior to go forward with the plan. And oh, I pray for that type of faith. I pray for that type of obedience. That should be our continual prayer. Lord, give me that kind of faith. We, we read these stories and too often we just kind of read through and think, wow, that's awesome, man. That, that, that's great. Lord, give that to me. You, you've laid this road ahead of me, and so often I am praying, God, change the path. Get rid of all of the obstacles. This, is, this hurts my feet to walk on it. Lord, change the path I'm on, and our prayer should continually be, Lord, give me the feet I need to walk the path you've placed in front of me. Give me the faith. Give me the obedience. 
Well, verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for the burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the, place, the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Here we see again the angel of the Lord coming. And again, evidence again that the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus himself because it says the angel of the Lord called to him, but look at verse 12, it says, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Jesus steps in and intercedes and says, Abraham, your faith has been proven. You have shown that you love me. You have shown that you are willing to hold nothing back from me. And in this, we see a lot of people, and again, reading this, and I've even heard this said before when I was having a discussion going through this a long time ago, saying, well, see, he didn't have to go all the way with it. He didn't have to show the true obedience to follow through all the way with it. Well, the bottom line with that is, guys, is that God oftentimes will put something before us, a challenge before us, and the, the, what he is looking for is a willingness to do what he is calling us to do. There are times where he will not require us to go completely through with it. I have an example of that. A, a good friend of mine a while back had just this huge desire that he, again, felt the Lord had placed on his heart to get into ministry full time. And things were really moving in that direction. He actually felt that he might be called as a pastor at some point and was, was really involved and heavily involved at the church, and things were going really well. And some things happened in his family and some, some other things going on, and he really felt that the Lord was telling him that he needed to step back. He needed to step out of ministry for a while and take care of some things at home and, and do some different things, and it really wrestled with him. We talked about it together. We prayed together. But ultimately, again, he was obedient, and he stepped back. And it wasn't within a month that God miraculously healed some things within the relationship so that he, was, that he had to deal with, and he was immediately back in, and God said, now go forward. God was just looking for his willingness and his obedience to follow that. God will do that, but he won't always do that. And that's where we can, we can sometimes start playing games with God. We can read a story like this and say, all right, Lord, I, I'll go along with that, knowing that at the last minute you're going to come through and you're not actually going to make me do it. Don't play games with God in that. It's up to him as to how he deals with that and orchestrates that. What he's looking for us is a willingness to do what he calls us to do and obedience as we step out in that. Now, it tells us that he calls the place. Well, actually, first off, it says that, remember back in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb. Remember? God will provide himself the lamb. But what did he provide? A ram. So is that... Something missing there? No. Because God did provide the lamb, as we talked about. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Abraham is talking about in verse 8. He provides a ram for this sacrifice, but he provides his son, the perfect lamb, for the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Now it says that he calls the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. 
And it's interesting because this is, again, as we've talked about, we don't know who the original authors is, everything put together. We know Moses accumulated everything and put it all together, but we can tell if it's not Moses writing it all down from a beginning or accumulating it all together at the end and putting it together. It says in verse 8, as it said to this day in the mount of the, the, I'm sorry, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So Moses is almost putting an editorial note in here saying on that mount, God will provide, and again, pointing to that ultimate fulfillment of Jesus on the cross for us. Now we see, continues here, verse 15, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And as the sand which is on the seashore, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now again, here, we look at this and it it almost seems, as we're reading this, that God now is going to fulfill this covenant promises because Abraham did this. But didn't God make these promises before unconditionally? And it can come about again as we start reading through this. And again, I hear people asking these kind of questions. Well, is it faith or is it works? Because it says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But here we're seeing that it, it was required that he did what he did or the whole deal was off. But that's not what it's saying. And again, we can look at different passages in Scripture that talk about this. James chapter 2, again, is one that many people point to, that you have to do certain works, and you have to, there's works involved in this, and make it works righteousness as opposed to being saved by grace and grace alone. James writes, even speaking of this very event, James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his only son, at the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And people point to that and say, See? See, it's not just faith. And he, he starts out, verse 17, a few, weeks, a few verses before this part about Abraham, he says, Faith without works is dead. But if we look at what James says in this, he says faith was working with his works. Faith was first. Faith was first. God's promises were first. He trusted in those promises first. And then he quotes it. He even says it right in there. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's where, again, we need to take the entire counsel of God together and see what it is saying. We take this very same event. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 4. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, was found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So are Paul and James disagreeing with one another? No. And the longer that you walk with the Lord, and the longer you spend time in his word, and the longer you pray through this, it becomes crystal clear. It's not faith or works that saves you. It's not faith and works that saves you. It's faith that works that saves you. Your your works are the evidence of the faith that is inside you. 
And we see here in the life of Abraham, and we see it come true in our own lives, that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. We have to be able to have a faith that is strong enough, God-given faith, that can stand these types of tests, that can get us through these types of things. Real faith will show itself. You've probably heard the illustration talked about before, but it's the, it's the best one. that having, having an orange tree. Putting a sign in front of an orange tree that says orange tree doesn't make it an orange tree. Oranges being produced by the orange tree show that it is an orange tree. But it's, it's, it, it is, it's all about the fact that the tree is there. It's, it's into the ground. It is an orange tree. It's already a tree. The fruit just shows that it's an orange tree. And how, how much struggle does an orange tree go through to produce oranges? It doesn't stand out there and groan and... It happens naturally. And, and the, the, the works that we do, the faith that we show, that we exercise as we go through the trials that God puts our way, the fact that we defeat temptation when it comes, is not of our own nature. It happens naturally from the faith that was within us. Supernaturally. Now it says here too, and I love this, this again, these types of things, if you, if you have somebody that's, that's arguing with you about the validity of the Bible and all those types of things, Notice that it says here, verse 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now, back when this was written, the most stars that they could count was roughly 3,000-ish. So you could look at this and they could, say, they could point to this back then and say, well, that's kind of crazy. What a contradiction. The sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky? Which one is it? Well, now we know that there are so many stars we can't count them, just like this, the sand on the seashore. And that's the point that the author is making here. And again, the Bible's proved accurate, 100% all the time, never contradicted. Well, he finishes up here, verses 19 through 24 in our text. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together back to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Can you imagine the conversation on the way home? I, could, I, did, I, I wish that was recorded. That's going to be one of those I want to I watch when I get to heaven. I want to see the replay of that. But now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. That's twins, maybe. I don't know. Uz and Buzz. And Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chesub, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jilpah, and Bethul. Bethul became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, and Gehan, and Tehash, and Makah. Again, not, not a whole lot of people naming their kids out of these, these verses, but. The point that we see here and the, the reason why it's important again that we see this, that this is setting the stage for chapter 24 that we're going to get into next week. Because, because we see in verse 23, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. 
And what an awesome typology we're going to get into with that next week. But you have to come back for that. All right, chapter 23, and we got to fly. Now Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Here we see the, the death of Isaac's mother. Some believe that this event actually took place before what we just talked about and that Isaac was actually in his 30s. We don't, it's not telling us that, but we're just going to go with the fact that it happened afterwards because it's sequentially coming here. 127 years old. And it tells us again, as we talked about last week real briefly, we look back through her life and all of the difficulties and trials and failures along the way, but again recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, For this is the way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Abraham, the father of faith, Sarah, our mother in faith. Continues on, she passes away, verse 3, Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my, out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you this grave for burying your dead. Interesting, if you have a margin, marginal reference, um, in verse 6 it says, you are a mighty prince among us. That is translated literally, you are a prince of God. You are a prince of God. He was obviously highly regarded in the area. He was looked at with, he wasn't one of them, he was a sojourner in their land. He didn't, he didn't belong to their tribes, but they thought very highly of him. He had a, he had a good reputation. But his reputation not only came from him, it came from his God. And you'll remember as we've gone through this real quickly, remember back when he, he went and rescued the people that had been taken captive by the, the, the kings of Sodom. When they all got taken captive, he went and rescued them and brought back. I mean, he was highly regarded. He and his men went and did that. They didn't have to, but they rescued all of these people and brought them back. And then I would imagine that what happened with Abimelech that we talked about, that had gotten around, but Abimelech, remember, God spoke to Abimelech specifically, and God told him, this is my man, Abraham. He is a prophet. He'll pray for you. So word travels around, and, and he's highly regarded in this area. So verse 7, so Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of the field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abram in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all, all who went out to the gate of the city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the presence of my sons of the people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. 
Now, he's, he's sounding awful humble here, but I can see he's got his hand out while he's saying that. What is that between you and me? Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham, Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver, which he, had, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard, current rate of exchange. So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faces Mamre, the field of the cave which was in it, and all the trees, trees which were in the field that were within the confi confines of its border were deeded over. Only land so far that we know that Abraham purchases. Again, he's a sojourner. He, he settled different places, but he was always moving. He buys a piece of land, this first that he owns. Deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the land of at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Now again, just we covered that very quickly. It's a you know a story of you know his wife Sarah passing away. He's getting a land to do this, but we see in this again how he's dealing with the people around him. He could have taken advantage of the fact that they looked up to him. He could have haggled for a lower price, but he says, I want to be fair. I want to deal with you in this right way. And again, just a great example for us, again, how we are to be dealing with people that are around us, the, the world around us. Again, it's an ugly place. We're living in a dark world, and we need to be the light that's in that dark world. We should never give the, those outside opportunity to speak negatively about us or about our God. Abraham continually going through, realizing now, I not only represent me and my family, I re represent the Lord Jehovah, and I need, to, I need to shine that light wherever he went. So we'll get into chapter 24 next week, longest chapter in the book of Genesis. So if you want to be reading ahead, beautiful story of, of uh, Isaac getting his wife, Rebecca. So you can be reading ahead for that. As I had mentioned earlier, I just challenge you. As I, it's been a couple of times today where I find myself just stopping and reflecting on the fact that God loves me so much. And I just pray that you would, you would spend some time reflecting on that. He loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son so that he could spend eternity with you. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for your incredible love, a love that we could never possibly earn or deserve. But Lord, we thank you for the incredible grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. Lord, we thank you for this, this story, this beautiful picture of what you did for us on the very same place where Abraham and Isaac went, that you fulfilled your word, that you did provide yourself as the lamb, the perfect lamb. Lord, let us draw close to you in that. Let us reflect on that as we, as we go home tonight, as we spend some quiet time with you before we, before we go to bed and get ready for a busy day tomorrow, understanding that, that you love us that much. And Lord, that you will never test us beyond what we can handle or allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you next time.